In a lot of ways, Division defines the history of Thunder Bay in Ontario. In 1970, the cities of Port Arthur and Fort William amalgamated into what we now know as Thunder Bay, a place that's bigger than Vancouver, Saskatoon, and Mississauga. Then, to make this place whole, the two old cities were stitched together with concrete shopping malls and highways in between. There was even division around what they were going to call the new city. Thunder Bay may have won the vote, but it wasn't technically the most popular name. The second place name was Lakehead, and, in a powerful argument for ranked balloting, the third place name was, get this, THE Lakehead. Seemed like people liked the idea of Lakehead, and yet they still found a way to divide themselves based on just the word THE. Thunder Bay has also been in the news for darker kinds of division. According to Statistics Canada, it consistently ranks high on the list for cities with the most reported hate crimes, particularly against its significant indigenous population. And in 2018, an independent government agency found racism at an institutional level within the Thunder Bay Police Service. You know by now, as we're in episode 6 of this show, that cities tend to channel and reflect and focus culture. So it seems what's happening in Thunder Bay is playing out in its very infrastructure and baked into the city's design. Because it's so big, Thunder Bay really requires a vehicle to get around. Most do all they can to scrape enough together to afford one, because without wheels, you can easily feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. But if you're someone who can't afford a car, then you find yourself running up against another division, being forced to use one of Thunder Bay's slow, infrequent, and unreliable buses. So saying that you are riding a bus basically becomes coded language for being as down and out as you could be. Public transit is desperately underfunded. That's Eric Andrew G a reporter from The Globe and Mail who, in 2019, was one of the journalists who worked in The Globe's Thunder Bay Bureau. And when he was there, he found a bus system so poorly managed and ignored by city officials that it was basically only used by low-income and indigenous people. It consists of a few bus lines. They were talking about now actually managed to get rid of the bus line that went out to the neighboring First Nations Reserve, which is a kind of adjacent part of the city, and replacing it with a kind of on-demand minibus situation, which is infinitely less useful for residents of that community. And so because Thunder Bay's bus system is so bad that people generally don't use it unless they absolutely have to, that ridership demographic reflects to city officials how much they should meaningfully invest in their public transit, meaning they tend to pump in just enough resources to keep it operating for those who have to take transit, or captive riders in urban mobility speak. But then there's not enough desire to make it attractive to choice riders, even though many studies show that a robust transit system used by everyone pays huge dividends when it comes to healthy city living for all. The political class in Thunder Bay is just remarkably uninterested in, in improving transit because the people who depend on it are not politically powerful and easy to ignore. You know, there is a scene in, in this article I wrote where the mayor was actually reluctant to take federal money to improve bus service because it would have required matching funds from the city. His voters were not riding the bus, so it was not a tough call for him. And I think that's how it goes. If you funnel a small and voiceless enough tranche of the population onto public transit, it becomes very easy to underfund because you don't lose any votes by it. 
This is the reverse of what you might call the virtuous cycle of public transit. When transit is frequent and accessible and reliable, people want to use it. And when people use it, they pay for it. And when they pay for it, broadly speaking, transit becomes more frequent and more accessible and more reliable. The good times just keep going and going. But things start to fall apart when transit runs inconsistently, and people start to feel like they don't have control over their time or their mobility, so that their schedules, their day, is at the mercy of this service. In Thunder Bay, Eric estimates that a 12-minute drive can take four times as long if you take the bus. Enrique Peñalosa, a former mayor of Bogota, Colombia, who oversaw the world's first implementation of bus rapid transit, once said that, quote, A developed country is not a place where the poor have cars. It's where the rich use public transportation. And that's definitely something to strive for. But how achievable is that, really? On this, our last episode of this season, we're taking a look at public transit. What conditions are required for a city to actually make a good transit system? And what is too often ignored? Welcome to City Space. I'm Adrian Lee. I think cities are one of the greatest human inventions ever. That's Christoph Spieler. A few years ago, he was a leading force in helping the city of Houston redesign its bus networks to great success. He's also the author of Trains, Buses, and People, an opinionated atlas of U.S. and Canadian transit. The gathering of people leads to economies, it leads to the exchange of ideas, it leads to the creation of culture, and fundamentally, it's just more fun. And transit allows us to do that very efficiently. And and there's a reason why the cities that tend to have the best transit systems are also like the greatest cities to wander around in and are also some of our most productive economic centers and are also the places where some of the most interesting ideas are coming out of. So if our goal is better cities, we want higher ridership transit. If our goal is lower environmental impact, the same thing is true. Christoph will tell us what he believes is a recipe for a successful transit system right after this. When Christoph Spieler and his team redesigned Houston's bus network in 2015, the result was pretty amazing. An 8% increase in 12 months, or 3.3 million more rides. And the team managed to do it with a modest sum of just $12 million, or 4% of the city's annual transit budget. Sounds like a pretty good deal. And how do you do it? Well, it starts, he says, with a firm investment in that virtuous cycle. There's a cycle here, which can either be a virtuous cycle or a negative cycle. And if it's the virtuous cycle, you run more transit service, which causes more people to ride it, which justifies more service, which causes more people to ride it, which eat like, and and you just keep going. And, and, And that's how great successful transit systems are built. The opposite cycle, and something I've been worried about in the COVID world is you have lower ridership, therefore you decide to run less service. As a result of running less service, you get even lower ridership. As a result of that, you cut service further and you can just sort of go end up in this downward spiral. And that question, there's also sort of a, a fundamental question of how we think about service. I would argue that 
service is both a way to respond to the capacity needs of transit. If your bus runs every five minutes and it's overcrowded, you should run your bus more often. But it's also a, a, a sort of a promise to the public. The idea that if a bus runs every 15 minutes all day, it means you don't need to look at a schedule and you can just show up. And I think it's worth thinking about service that way, that even if you know the 2.45 p.m. bus isn't particularly busy, it is part of that larger promise we are making, which allow people to depend on transit. And I think often we've had sort of the former attitude that, that like there's we have this quest for efficiency in transit. And sometimes what really makes transit systems effective is not trying to micro-optimize for efficiency, which ironically actually gets you better efficiency in the big picture because you start to create a place where people can count on transit as an integral part of their everyday lives. And you better believe that the kind of person who literally wrote the book on public transit has a recipe for successful urban transit networks. You want to serve density. You want to serve places that have lots of activities. You want to make the areas around transit walkable. You want to make the networks connected. You want to make the service frequent. You want to optimize your travel time. You want to make the whole thing reliable. You want to provide the capacity you need to provide. And you need to make the system easy to understand and welcoming to everybody. You do those things and you are going to have successful transit. The big issue, as has really become a theme for this podcast, is the pandemic. Lots of people stopped riding public transit in cities because, well, many white-collar folks no longer had to go into work. So commuter rail, that is, those trains that run from the suburbs to downtown, which specifically targeted 9 to 5 white-collar workers, these used to be the busiest routes, but not so much anymore. Christoph estimates that some of these routes lost up to 95% of their ridership during peak lockdown. He hopes to see cities use their transit systems for more of what he calls all-purpose transit, connecting different versions of services to each other all throughout the day to better reflect the reality of the different way folks work and move in the city, instead of just concentrating a heap of resources on the 9-to-5 rush hour service. North American transit systems that offered this version of all-purpose transit generally had a ridership that held strong during the pandemic, even during the strictest lockdowns. But if this approach sounds new or different, it all actually boils down to that same old basic formula for good, desirable public transit. Fundamentally, it gets them where they want to go, um, and it gets them there when they want to go. It, it's that it's that late. I mean, it, it's it's about going where people are. It's about frequent service. It's about reliable service. It's very simple. And it's not the bells and whistles. It's, it's fundamentally the service. You know, whenever I hear people talking about USB ports on transit, sure, it's nice to be able to charge your phone on the bus. I don't think people make the decision of whether to ride a bus or not based on whether they can charge their phone on board. They absolutely make that decision based on whether the bus comes every 60 minutes or every 10 minutes. Okay, now, say you do get that frequent service thing down pat. You get a nice, virtuous cycle going. Then, a USB port on the bus doesn't sound like the worst idea, right? Okay, what about, say, autonomous shuttles in your entertainment district? That all seems pretty cool. Well... I'm going to chat with one urban mobility expert who thinks that's exactly the kind of flashy solution that's solving the wrong kinds of problems. We'll get into that right after this. Please stand clear of the doors.
David Zipper is an urban policy and urban mobility technology expert who served in municipal governments in Washington and New York City. These days, he's a visiting fellow at Harvard Kennedy School, where he focuses on the interplay of the future of cities, tech, and mobility. And he joined us to talk about why we should avoid the flashiest new public transit tech and how it really should be about giving people what they actually want and how that might not be free public transit. Here's an excerpt from our interview. So when we hear about public transit, it's so often uh, about being the first at something or this sort of flashy, big, high investment technology. Um, but, you know, that's not really what public transit is, right? On a day-to-day basis, that's not really what people are engaging with. So why, why is it that we only really hear about the first and the flashy? Um, well, I, I think it's not just transit, I would say. I think it's it's urban transportation writ large. Um, you have to keep in mind that for, gosh, you know, the second half of the 20th century, there wasn't that much crazy new technology coming to urban transportation. You had your buses and your taxis and your trains, um, but it wasn't like you had the, these disruptive new technologies arriving. Maybe you have, um, you know, someone trying out an autonomous shuttle um, and that has sort of created this idea in, 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 in the ideas of some, uh, for, well, I guess I'd put it that some transportation leaders, whether they're at a transit agency or with the city think, gosh, it sure would be cool to be the first to have this technology and showcase. It's a human interest. It's FOMO is the way I think of it. Just like when you're in high school, you feel bad if, if you don't get invited to the party and you feel great if you're the first one to get the cool pair of sneakers or, or, or shirt or whatever it is, it's the same kind of a human uh, aspiration. Although I think it's destructive when we're older thinking about urban transportation technology, where you have leaders who are sort of crave sometimes the headline they get in a newspaper like the Globe and Mail. And to your point, I think you're right. I'm not sure that that's what actual commuters and residents care most about. They care about their daily lives. They care about their daily commutes. And in my view, the the sort of fetish of, if you will, of the FOMO-based transportation technology is risky. I mean, at one time or another, though, right, subways were sexy technology. Streetcars, you know, maybe it was 100 years ago, but that was shiny new technology. And to some degree, we don't see it as that anymore. But how do we make people see it as not only, you know, maybe this isn't the newest cutting edgest thing, but it's better. Yeah. I think the question it's always worth starting with is, is if we're going to make this investment, we're going to launch this new technology or we're going to expand this service. This is how it's going to improve your life. We need to be able to answer that when we're talking to constituents or to urban residents. And if we can't, then there's only two possible you know, reasons why, in my view. One is it's just a bad idea. We're doing it for the wrong reasons. The other is we may not know. It's possible this is going to help, but we just don't know yet. And in that case, that's okay. But it, to me, when you to answer your question, when you talk about just like subways and expanding subway service, that should be a pretty straightforward argument to talk to a resident and say, look, when, when the headways or the wait time between the trains arriving goes down from eight minutes to six, that's going to make your life a little bit easier and your commute shorter. 
that's kind of a slam dunk. And we should be able to communicate that. And if people are nodding along saying that sounds great, I think you're on the right track from a policymaking perspective. Right. And when we talk about improving your life being the main thing, what does that uh, specifically look like when we're talking about public transit in particular? Improving the, the rider's life, it can mean a few different things. One is, I mean, I'm, I'm a, a adherent to uh, some ideas put forth by who I think is a very um, uh, sort of groundbreaking um, transit thinker and consultant, a guy named Jarrett Walker, who wrote a really good book on this called Human Transit. And, and what he would say is that people care about, about the, the time of their trip and the reliability. First and foremost, they don't care as much about the architecture of the station. They don't care as much about whether there's Wi-Fi on board. They care about how long it's going to take them for, to get from point A to point B and how reliable that trip is. That's, I think, where you really need to focus. Now, that said, it's expensive to run a lot more transit service, to buy the buses and the subways, to hire the people to run it. Sometimes in a subway line, you hit constraints on how many trains you can have period just be, because it only has a limited capacity. And there are other ways to improve the transit experience in my view that can be more cost effective. This gets into what I consider to be sort of the opposite of FOMO, a term that I think of as mundane mobility, the kinds of really boring things that can actually make a difference in somebody's uh, commuting life. Like for example, um, here's one, bus shelters. How much time do we spend thinking about or, or reading articles about bus shelters? But they're really important. And there's actually studies to show that if you have a weather-protected place to wait for the bus to come, a place maybe that has some heat, uh, you're more likely to opt to take the bus. So I'm with you with the mundane mobility. I think that's that sounds great. You know, as a person who takes public transit, you know, give me something that's actually going to benefit my life and give me something that is not going to cost me as a taxpayer a huge amount of money. But how is it then I and people like me can convince politicians to take their eyes off the shiny thing in the window then? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And it's a tough one because a lot of it, I think, comes to what the media chooses to cover. Um, you know, like, is the media going to choose to cover an autonomous shuttle that is just being, it's a demonstration project for a couple of months and then goes away? Or are you going to get articles about an investment in sidewalks, perhaps the most boring kind of infrastructure you could think of, but it's so critical, you know, like, like not just for people who walk, who are walking to their destination, but for those who need a safe place, to, a safe way to get to the bus stop or to the train station. So I actually put a lot of onus on um, on the media to choose how they cover these stories. I also think that it's important to appeal to the public spirit of well-intentioned um, you know, officials, uh, both those who are elected and those who are appointed and say, look, you know, you've got your chance to improve your city and improve the lives of residents. Do you want to focus on that, even if it means you get less headlines, or do you want to just chase something that's going to be sort of like a, a sexy, quick story, but is actually not going to leave any kind of an impact like cotton candy? I'd rather have real nourishment, like a, a full meal, which is what I think, say, sidewalks are, than the, uh, the tasty but disappearing flavor of cotton candy, which is what an AV shuttle pilot is. 
we're seeing a number of public transit systems across North America offering some asp- some kind of free ride service or the idea that, you know, there's no fares. Um, but if ride- if the whole point of ridership, this is the thing maybe I can't figure out. If the whole point of ridership is you have more investment from the fares, how is free rides going to be a sustainable way to improve public transit long term? Well, <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> uh, that's a complicated one. Yeah. So the idea of saying like, oh, well, we need to make tra- make sure transit users are paying the full cost of service is basically just condemning transit into a death spiral because you'll have terrible, terrible service. So that's not, in my view, the way to think about it. The real cost of transit, I would argue, is not the dollar, $2, whatever it is that you're paying to ride. It's the amount of time you're taking. There's a cost of, in terms of time. That's a massive, massive cost. And when you do surveys, which a very uh, well-respected nonprofit in the United States called Transit Center has done, and ask riders, especially low-income riders, what, do you, what would make you ride transit more often? What would you most want? They don't say make transit free. They say provide more and more regular service. So, in, 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 But the problem is providing more and more regular service requires either more money being spent on providing it or it requires taking space away from cars to create bus rapid transit for the buses. And that's politically challenging. So in my view, um, and I know this is a controversial position, I think that it is um, a bit of a intellectual shortcut that's a little disingenuous that some progressives have made to embrace free transit as the way to uh, most improve service Whereas if you really care about the riders and you really care about transit, either on equity grounds or on environmental grounds or on just simple efficiency grounds, there's no shortcut around making uh, transit service faster and more reliable. Making it free is way down the list of what we should be focused on. So we we spoke to Christoph Spieler, who's the author of Trains, Buses, and People, and we talked about the state of public transit at this particular stage of the pandemic. Um, and so for so long, so much of public transit revolved around making things easier for those white collar folks who were doing commutes, right? The nine to five, com- like huge crushes in the morning, huge crushes after work. Uh, that's obviously been blown up uh, a reasonable amount. I mean, the the work remote shift is is itself shifting. Um, but we remain at this kind of precipice because transit really is about uh, where do we where are the most people coming and going, and how do we best accommodate that? And this really changed in some ways. It feels like a kind of paradigm, right around around how transit works. Do you uh, do you see public transit being able to adapt to the fact that its sort of main demographic has shifted its work habits and I guess its travel habits? Yeah, I mean, I think um, we're still just starting to understand how all of this post-COVID stuff is going to play out for uh, for urban land use, for where people choose to live how they choose to travel. We, we especially, you know, we're recording this now with a new variant that's scaring people. Um, you know, we're still learning. I think that there are indications that it could be either very bad or very good for transit. And I'll give you a couple of sort of exam. People can keep an eye out on this potentially in the months to come. What would be really bad is if people, uh, especially white collar workers, 
have a chance to work part-time remotely or even full-time remotely. And they may not leave a metro area, but they may say, you know what, if I'm only commuting two days a week, I can afford to have an annoying drive. And so they're going to move from some more central areas to more suburban ones and exurban ones, which is really bad for transit. It's very hard to provide those kinds of trips effectively. And that could lead to more vehicle miles traveled, actually. So that would be really bad. What could actually be good, though, is, you know, you were talking about how, and it's true, that the peak uh, travel seems to, to, to have really gone away. The big spike you get at 9 a.m. or in 5 p.m. roughly, it's much flatter during the pandemic, and it seems to remain a lot flatter. Um, you know, it's not obvious unless you work in transit, but that's actually really, really good for transit agencies because they only have so many buses and trains. So they're all going to be out there at rush hour, right? So if relatively speaking, people are going to be more likely to travel midday or early in the morning and not at those rush hour times, it, it, it helps the utilization or improves utilization of their fixed assets, the trains and the buses. So that's actually really helpful. It also means they may have to pay less overtime. Uh, to their workers. So, you know, things could be positive or they could be negative uh, for transit, I think. And we're going to have to sort of wait and see how this plays out. And you named the bus stop as one of the sort of best unsexy ways to reduce perceived wait times and and make public transit more desirable to use. But uh, what are some other examples that you might uh, have to offer? Some of the boring stuff that I like is is um, providing um, uh, real-time information at stations to know when the next bus or train is coming before you go down into the train tube, uh, if you will, which, which some cities have done now, but many others have not. There's a lot of evidence showing that when people know how long they're gonna have to wait, they perceive the wait time to be a lot less. I like the idea of making it really easy to take your bike onto transit, like build more, bike storage and secure bike storage near transit stations and make it clear that e-bikes, which are growing in popularity, are welcome aboard as many transit vehicles as possible. That's something that a lot of transit systems are still figuring out how to handle. And I think it makes a lot of sense to embrace e-bikes as really sort of a complementary travel mode for, for transit systems. Um, those are all some of the sort of more immediate or lower hanging fruit ways that I think um, we, we could potentially improve transit without spending the money that, that we ultimately probably need to spend to actually just provide better levels of service. So, yeah, frequency and convenience, those really feel like they're the, the secret sauce things to amping up to improve the health overall of a transit system. And land use. Dense, build densely, because you need the demand. You need lots of people wanting to take uh, transit. And then it's all then you really have that that positive feedback loop, if you will. We're ending this season on public transit because for me, it's an aspect of city life that can genuinely make me smile. Maybe I don't get quite as big a grin as someone like Christoph Spieler gets when he talks about his favorite invention ever. But when everything goes just right when you're taking public transit, I think you don't need to be an expert to feel the satisfaction that can come from feeling like the place you live in has your back. I remember, back in my university years when I lived in Halifax, I would feel like I was maximizing the city whenever I timed out the perfect route to do all my errands around town within the two-hour transfer I got. And growing up just outside Toronto, mastering the city's sprawling subway map and its web of buses and streetcars 
felt like I was unlocking a code to the city. There's just something pleasurable about moving around quickly and easily in a place with lots to do, about making easy sense of something and then being whisked away. And there's something pretty cool about the fact that people fought hard to figure out how best to make it all happen. There are tons of these ways across city design where the places in which we live want to make our lives better, and tons more ways where, if you look closely, we can make things even better. Hopefully, our podcast has helped you look at these amazing places a little bit differently, so you can find the joy in them too. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed making these episodes for you. Well, that's it from us here at City Space. That was the last episode of Season 1. If you like what you've heard, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have suggestions for what issues you might like us to tackle in a second season, you can email the show at podcasts at globeandmail.com. City Space is produced by Julia De Laurentiis Johnston. This episode was written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee, with research assistance from Shannon Clark. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guest this episode, Eric Andrew G. You can find him on Twitter at Eric Andrew G. Christoph Spieler, you can find his work at trainsbussespeople.org. And David Zipper, you can find him on Twitter at David Zipper or at davidzipper.com. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.